Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, hello, everyone. I'm London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, and I am so excited to be here today to have this amazing conversation with an incredible public servant, Valerie Jarrett. Thank you so much, Madam Mayor. I love the sound of that, don't you? (laughs) Madam Mayor! (laughs) I feel like I'm coming back home. I went to Stanford for undergraduate. I don't know why I ever left the Bay Area. Every time I fly in, I go, this is why I should be right back here. And this is actually my second time coming to the Commonwealth Club. So thank you for having me back. Thank you so much. And just uh, wanted to read a few things at the Commonwealth Club. You know, they want me to take responsibility for the program as your moderator today. So please uh, let me start by welcoming you all to the Commonwealth Club. And uh, I wanted to just also say, as our special guest here just found out, that Her new book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, is on the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) (laughs) During Barack Obama's rise in American politics, Valerie Jarrett was by his side and his most trusted aide and advisor. In Finding My Voice, she opens up about the challenges of navigating different conceptions of race and identity in America, the zigzags of her career path as she quit her job as a lawyer and took a leap of faith moving into public service, all while being a single mother and raising her daughter, Laura. Of course, the book would be incomplete without the hilarious, tragic, and inspiring anecdotes from her times on the campaign trail and in the White House with the Obama family. As the longest-serving senior advisor in the Obama administration, overseeing the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs, as well as chairing the White House Council on Women and Girls, she leaves behind a legacy of championing equality and opportunity for all Americans in her decades of public service. We are so grateful to have her with us today. And so, ladies and gentlemen of the Commonwealth Club, please give her another warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So again, welcome, and thank, thank you, you so, so much for being here. And I was just telling, can I call you Valerie? I wish you would. Okay. Uh, I was just telling my friend Valerie here, <laughs> <laughs> I am so glad you wrote this book. Um, it was very inspiring to read, and in fact, um, I'm, I mean, just your work in the mayor's office, uh, your upbringing, your family, all of these different dynamics, I just could really relate. But I especially was so emotional when I read the section where you talked about Puddin. Puddin. Puddin's my grandmother, was my grandmother, the matriarch of our family. Yes, and I was raised by my grandmother, and I just thought, man, we all need a Puddin in our life. Everybody needs a Puddin. She used to say to me, we have a common bond because we have a common enemy, your mother. And, uh, <laughs> and in fact, when I was very young, when I was about, this says something about both my mother and Putin. When I was about six, I decided to run away from home. How many of you run away from home, right? So I was packing my bags very methodically, and my mother comes in my bedroom, and she goes, let me help you. I was like, is she really going to let me go? And she said, here, don't forget your undershirts. I remember like it was yesterday. I packed my bag, walked around the corner to Puddin's house, and she gave me Ritz crackers and cheese. That was my favorite snack. And I sat there for about two hours, and then suddenly out of nowhere, my mother appeared. I'm like, how did she know where I was? (laughs) And she just grabbed me quietly by the hand and walked me home. And I was relieved because I hadn't actually thought she'd let me out the door. But if I had to go somewhere... I went to Puddin's, and she was really the anchor of our family. If you were running late from work, drop your kids at Puddin'. If someone's sick, put them there. And she always had a pot of soup and gingerbread waiting and unconditional love and spoiled us all rotten and left it to our parents to discipline us. That, I mean, amazing. And I love that story in the book, including um, I, your story about uh, being born and raised in Iran and uh, spending a year living in London. And, and tell us a little bit about, um, as a young child and those experiences and, and just your travels back to the United States and, and, and the big difference and the, and the shock that and, and the challenges that you faced. Yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock to me. So when my uh, 
My father was a physician, and when he was uh, finished his residency, he joined the army. And after two years, when he was leaving the army, he was looking for a job. And this is in the mid-50s. I'll date myself. And uh, he couldn't find a job at a major teaching institution. He wanted to do research. He was a pathologist, geneticist, hematologist, and at a price or at a salary comparable to his white counterparts. And so he and my mom, who were really adventuresome spirits, started looking for opportunities outside of the United States. And he heard about a position starting a new hospital in Shiraz, Iran, and they asked him to be the chairman of the Department of Pathology. And so against the uh, wishes of their family, who were like, you're going where? And where is that country? And do you know anything about it? Do you know anything about the government or the people or the culture? And no, we didn't know anything at all. They didn't know anything at all. But it was a place that was going to give a black doctor from the United States an opportunity better than he could find right here at home. And so off they went. And uh, a year or so later, I was born. I was the second baby born in the Namazi Hospital. I always say they practiced on some other poor child first. <laughs> Got that out of the way, all the kinks out of the system. And then we lived there until I was five. And from there, my father had done research in Iran that caught the eye of a professor at the Galton Labs at University College of London. And he offered him a one-year position there to go and continue his research. And from there, he was giving a speech, and the dean at the University of Chicago Medical Center was at some international conference and heard him speak and offered him a job, tenure-track position at the University of Chicago. And so one of the early lessons my father always said to me was, look, sometimes the shortest distance to where you ultimately want to go is the longest way around, and you have to be willing to look at life as an adventure. And if he had just stayed, then he would never have had this opportunity to be the first African-American tenured in the Department of Biological Sciences at U of C. But when we returned to the United States, I'm five, almost six, and for my parents, it was a celebration to go back home. And my mom moved in the neighborhood where her mother and sister and extended family lived. And my father was from Washington, but Chicago is where he'd done his residency. And it's so familiar to them and totally foreign to me. And in fact, when we landed, the time I'd been to the United States that I could remember, uh, the first time, it was like three or four, and we were at a very fancy hotel right here in San Francisco on our way to Chicago, flying from Iran, and we're sitting around the dining room table, and I stay in a, say in a very loud stage whisper, is it okay to drink the water in this hotel? <laughs> And the server was looking at me like, what are you talking about? But in Iran, you, ha you had to be very careful about what you drank, what you ate. Um, the diseases that you could contract there could be fatal. And that's what I was used to. So they plopped me down in Chicago in a public school, in a predominantly black public school. Now, I had a British accent. I spoke Farsi, uh, French, and English, often all in the same sentence. Uh, <laughs> Because we'd live in a hospital compound with physicians from all over the world. And I'd learned to play with kids, and we didn't even have to have language as a barrier. Kids are kids, and we just played together. But here I am in a public school. I'd skip two grades. Um, I'm fair-skinned, freckles, red hair, and I used to get beat up every day for a whole variety of reasons. And my younger cousin, who was 10 pounds lighter and six months younger, would come to my rescue because she had two older siblings, so she was used to fighting and doing it successfully. But it was a culture shock for me, and I lost that British accent by the end of week one. Uh, I stopped speaking Farsi immediately because I didn't want anybody... Nobody had heard of Iran back then. We, we had far better diplomatic relations with the country than we have today, but no one in my community school had any idea where Iran was, and I just wanted to be like all the other kids. So it was hard for me in the beginning, but you know what? I adjusted, and that was part of what my parents wanted to give me, and it was such a gift, is that... They had taken me over the color barrier, as I call it, having been born in a country where nobody looked at my father as a black doctor. They looked at him as an American doctor. And, uh, and so his confidence grew. And so when he returned to the United States, he thought the sky was the limit in terms of what he could do. My mother, always the pessimist, was like, sky might be the limit, but you better prepare for the worst. And so they raised me with that kind of combined set of, of a perspective. Uh, but it was a gift, a real gift. Yeah, but, they, but your mom would also say, it'll all be fine. Whatever went wrong, she'd say, she'd prepare you for it going wrong. And then when it did, <laughs> she never said, I told you so. But she did say, you'll be just fine. And part of what she was trying to teach me was the importance of resilience. Yeah. And that you just had to keep, keep at it. And she'd say, you have to work twice as hard. And she never finished that sentence. But she'd say, just work twice as hard. And, you know, if luck falls your way, then you can eventually achieve what you want to achieve. 
But you were also what you described in the book, shy. Painfully shy. And quiet and oh sometimes afraid to speak up. I Never. can't even believe that was. Never spoke up. I, oh my. <laughs> so I go to law school for reasons I cannot fully explain to you other than my mother told me if I didn't go and get an advanced degree, both of my parents really valued education. They, my mother had a master's in education. My father, as I mentioned, is a physician. And so she said, you'll be selling girdles in the basement of Marshall Fields. <laughs> If you don't go, well, who wants to do that? So uh, I kind of I worked my way to law school, but I got called on the first day of law school in a class twice, two different classes, criminal law and property. I still remember it. And both times, I mean, it makes me start to sweat just thinking about it. Uh, I, I, don't, I just went blank. And I, I really could not do public speaking. I was very shy. Wow. And I had to work my way to like, now I love it. I love coming. You're such a natural too. I was not a natural <laughs> back then, which is another lesson is that you can get good, good at things you don't think you're good at if you just do them enough. And I, I, uh, I got kind of suckered into it. I got promoted when I worked for Mayor Daly. And I was so glad to meet your deputy chief of staff because I used to be a deputy chief of staff and seeing her just brought back all these memories. But Mayor Daly made me the commissioner of planning and development. My friend Kelly Double is here with me who worked with me there. Nobody told me you had to make speeches as a commissioner of planning and development. And in fact, and I met your press person, I tried to fire my press secretary the first week because <laughs> I was like, I'm not talking to the press. I don't talk to anybody. And lo and behold, I got barraged with questions from the press and some of those stories were not good. And he said, you have to go out there and describe an affirmative agenda. And yeah. you have to, if you don't like the press you're getting, well, then you, it's on you to go and explain, right? Why? Yeah, I know you must have the same kind of a challenge. And so I, I started making speeches and the first one, I had a note card, and it was in a conference room at a law firm, which already made me kind of shake because I'd left a law firm, and I was like, oh, God, I'm back in a law firm again. And um, I started to perspire, and so the ink, like, mushed on my note card. And I looked down, and my hand is blue, so I'm trying to hold it like this behind my back, and I couldn't read anything on the card. And it was a description of the Department of Planning and Development that I'd helped create when I was in the mayor's office. So I knew it because it was my baby, and I just was so nervous, but I got through it, and that's kind of the point. And then I did it again, and I did it again, and I did it again, and I would have butterflies in my stomach, and my mom would say to me, just because you're nervous doesn't mean people need to know you're nervous, right? Yeah. And then eventually, you're not so nervous. And, and the other thing that I found interesting, too, because um, when you worked in the mayor's office, even early on for Mayor Harold Washington, you were always accessible to people. You always made yourself available to people. And uh, that was, I found, quite interesting because as someone who started as an intern working in the mayor's office of neighborhood services, we were the front line when people would come to the mayor's office. Absolutely. And, and I, I got to admit, though, I didn't have the kind of patience that you, you had. And, you know, like that was absolutely fascinating, the time that you spent and, and your appreciation and respect for the people that you served during that time. And, and you loved every minute of it. I really did. I, for, well, first of all, I knew that government had, local government in Chicago had a reputation for not being available and accessible. And I came in under the leadership of Mayor Harold Washington, who was the first African-American mayor of Chicago, and he just won election for a second term. And I had been sitting in a big law firm in a fancy office and doing everything that my 10-year plan told me I should do. Uh, but I was miserable. And a friend of mine said to me, why don't you think about public service? You'll feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. And it was the first time where I really did a gut check, and I said, I better listen to the quiet voice inside of me because I am so miserable. And I'm just so happy I was as miserable as I was because I might not have stayed. I mean, I might have stayed there. And then, oh, my gosh, that would have been a disaster. Uh, but I took this leap of faith, and I joined city government for the purpose of serving. And so I think I came into it with that attitude. And I worked for four years as a lawyer for the city before I moved to the mayor's office. And so I, and I heard complaints from citizens all the time. And so moving into the mayor's office, it was with the intent of being responsive. And I tell a story in the book about, you know, my phone used to ring and it'd be the guard out in front of the mayor's office. Because if people showed up at the mayor's office, that meant they took off time from work. They had to hire a babysitter, and they were piping mad. And you never knew why they were as angry as they were until you started to talk to them. And it was my job to, like, take the temperature down and actually try to help them. And I found that challenging and interesting, and I felt so good, even if it was just 
getting somebody a permit or getting them to clean up an empty, the city to clean up an empty lot that was causing problems in the neighborhood or major redevelopment project, whatever it was, I felt like we were there to help. And you did all of this while raising your daughter, Laura. Yes. So yeah. how did you do it? Well, so yes, Laura, best thing I ever did. I already told you about the 10-year plan. So it was, you know, go to law school to avoid selling the, the girdles, uh, come back to Chicago, a city I loved, and I was kind of homesick. I was, I'm an only child. And uh, discover true love, get married, uh, have a baby, and live happily ever after. And so I married figuratively the boy next door in that our mothers grew up in the same apartment building. Uh, yeah, I know. Our dads were friends. He was a doctor. My dad was a doctor, as I've mentioned to you. I had had a crush on him since I was eight and he was 12. Uh, we went to my grandmother's church, and I would just watch him, you know, walking down as an altar boy. And uh, he paid attention to me when I was 26 or 25. And I had, I mean, really a big gap between eight and 25. I finally got him to look at me. And so I was like, I'm going to marry that guy. And never actually got to know the adult version of the guy I had the crush on, and so I was perfectly miserable. And so miserable in my job, miserable in my personal life. My parents were married for 62 years when my dad died, so I had this model of an incredibly close-knit family, a happily healthy marriage, and mine was not. And I did have Laura, just shy of my 29th birthday, because that was part of the goal, before 30. And I'm so glad that clock ticks later now. Uh, Laura is now 33, pregnant herself for her, with Aww. her first baby. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. I'm so excited. Now I get to have that common enemy again, like my grandmother did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but so it was really important to me to be this good mother. And I would look at her every day. And she was part of what motivated me, I think, to take that leap of faith. is because I knew if I'd stayed in that law firm, she was never going to be really proud of me. And I wanted to do something to earn her respect and give her a role model of a working mom. Because my mother had always worked. And my mother had rules like a, when she taught, early child, she taught preschool before she started an institute that teaches early childhood education. And I would call her. And any time I called... Uh, she would say, you've got to put Valerie through, no matter what it is. Don't even ask. Just put her through. And I can remember listening on the phone to hearing my mother's high heels clicking on the floor, getting closer and closer. And it just calmed me down. And so I had that rule with Laura. And I thought, you know what? Uh, if I, wherever I am, I can be with the mayor. I can be in a meeting, put her through. One day, an assistant didn't put her through. And I came out of the meeting, and she's, she said, Laura called. And I go, how come you didn't put her through? And she said, well, you were in a meeting with the door closed. And I said, yeah, but I told you when Laura calls, you had to put her through. And she said, she said it wasn't important. And I said, you know what? A five-year-old doesn't decide if it's important. I decide. I'm the mom here. And I, so, but the part of the point I'm making is that I worked in an environment where I could be the single mom. And I, I loved uh, Mayor Daly, but he used to scare me to death. And when I first started working for him. So be careful there. You don't want your staff to be too scared of you. I'm not so bad. <laughs> he, he was intimidating. But I was in his office one day uh, with a colleague who was the corporation counsel, and I was at that point um, in the planning department, and we both are looking at our watches, and he caught us. And, you know, he's a mayor. We should be paying attention to the meeting. And he said to me, so what's more important than this meeting? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. <laughs> I knew she could relate to this story. Yes. <laughs> and I don't know what I would have done if Susan hadn't been across the table looking at me like, please tell him. And I said, you know, Susan and I have second graders. And the Halloween parade starts in 20 minutes. And we are 25 minutes away. And he looked at me and he said, then what are you doing here? And the permission that that gave us to fly down Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, above the speed limit, I will say, we get to the school just as they're opening the door, and these little darlings in their costumes come out. And of course, we, the parents, are all outside to watch them parade. Maude Baghetto, my daughter's best friend, who's here now, lives in San Francisco, was in that group. And of course, the kids are looking in the crowd, and we were there. Mm. And we were there because I worked for somebody who appreciated that as a single mom, if I didn't show up, there wouldn't be anybody there. And same for Susan. She was a single mom, too. And so I was able to do it with help of a good boss. My parents lived a mile away. My dad took Laura to school every day and picked her up because his, uh, the university uh, campus was where she went to school, to the laboratory school there. And so he was at a stage in his life where he could leave work twice a day. 
And so I had all the support, I had means, I could afford wonderful childcare, and I still felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And it is what really was the kernel in my mind to think, well, what about those families who don't have what I have? And the moms that are working two shifts and are leaving their children through no fault of their, of their own in conditions where they're worried about them all the time and they don't have health care and they don't have, they don't have everything I have, how must they feel? And so when I got to the White House and President Obama asked me to chair the White House Council on Women and Girls, it was with those moms in mind, those working families in mind, that we promoted practices like workplace flexibility and equal pay and paid leave and paid sick days and a work environment free of sexual harassment or violence. All of the things that I think employers who want to both attract and retain the most talented people they can are thinking about today, not from a nice-to-do for women, but a business imperative, a globally competitive uh, advantage. And so all of that really stemmed from my experience as a young single mom. Nice. I would have said the same thing. I would have said, go, what are you doing here? Right? <laughs> Why'd she wink? <laughs> um, so um, I, let, let's talk about the best hire ever. Um, I, I love that story and how you talked about uh, when you first met Michelle Obama. And I thought it was quite interesting, um, just really, well, I'll let you tell the story, but tell us a little bit about that, because I found that quite fascinating that you agreed to go out to uh, dinner with her and her fiancé. It's a little peculiar, right? Um, So uh, the same woman who was sitting across the table from me sent me a resume, and across the top, he said, brilliant young lawyer, great credentials, doesn't want to be at a big law firm, wants to explore public service. And I thought, well, that sounds like somebody I'd want to meet. So I invited Michelle Robinson for an interview. And it was supposed to be like a 20-minute informational interview. And so she walks in the door, and she's tall. And I still remember she had on all black, her hair pulled back, just a little hint of makeup. And she looked me right in the eye and shook my hand, and she sat down. And she saw her resume sitting on my desk. Never mentioned Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School, any of that. She told me her story, and it's a story that everybody now in our country thankfully knows, and particularly those of you who've read her book, Becoming, which I will pitch to you. Uh, And it's about growing up on the south side of Chicago, working-class family, loved her and her brother Craig, valued education, sacrificed and encouraged them to go to get this great education and then lead a purposeful life, a life where they could be of service and useful. And... Uh, she talked about just like her personal self. And about 20 minutes in, she slowly kind of turned the table on me, started asking me questions. Now, I'd just been promoted. I didn't really have any answers for her to any of her questions. And she kept at it and at it and at it, which is kind of a lesson as well, is that an interview should be a two-way street. And I think what I was used to in the mayor's office, even though I'd only been there for a moment, was People wanted to work in the mayor's office, right? And they just like come and sell themselves. And it's a seller's and a buyer's market. And she recognized that. And she wanted to make sure up front it would be a good fit. So I offer her a job on the spot. I had no authority to offer her a job (laughs) on the spot. But I thought, well, who would turn this down? She's just fabulous. And she wisely, uh, at the age of about 27, demurred. And she said, let me think about it. So a few days later, after I'd actually gone and gotten clearance to hire her, I called her back again, and I said, well, and she said, we have a problem. And I was like, well, what's the problem? I thought we really hit it off. And she said, my fiancé doesn't think it's such a good idea. So I said, well, who's your fiancé, and why do we care what he thinks? (laughs) I didn't get it. And she said, well, and she chuckled, and she said his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer on the south side of Chicago. And he's concerned that I'm going from a big law firm right into the fire. At least you had four years in the frying pan and the being a counselor and getting used to it. I'd be going right to a political position. And he and I were wondering, would you have dinner with us to talk about it? Well, am I ever glad I said yes? I could have said no, I won't do it. But I said yes, I was curious, and I really wanted to hire her. And so off we went and had dinner. And I still remember the two of them, not just the love uh, that most people feel when they're engaged, but the respect that they had and the fact that they were making this life decision together. And people said, well, isn't it odd that you know, you'd want your fiancé there? But there isn't a life decision he made without her sitting right there as well. And so they were starting out, I think, the way that I've seen them grow and mature and face life together as a team. 
And um, I will share with you that I thought he was so interesting because he told me about his life in Indonesia and I talked about Iran and it was one of the first times I really opened up with an adult about what it was like because he got it because he'd had a similar experience and how we both felt we could walk in a room and find something in common with whoever's in the room because we had this early experience in childhood doing that and how sometimes people who are from the United States don't appreciate the fact that you don't have to actually boil the water and peel the food and we have civil liberties here that, we, that are not shared all over the world and not that we're perfect, but we are uh, better than a lot of places. And then finally, that the United States is a great country mm-hmm. already, I would say, but um, <laughs> just a little hint in there, but... It's not the only country, and that we can still learn a great deal outside of here. So we had this bonding session, which kind of amused Michelle sitting there, and she and I both had another talk about our parents and how they'd raised us, and the three of us agreed that service was really what drove us. And I thought, maybe, just maybe this young man one day, because he just finished law school, I thought, maybe he could be mayor of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) What more could you want than that, right? Uh, not governor, no, no, be the mayor of Chicago. So he kind of exceeded my um, ex- <laughs> expectations of him. Uh, but, but I still think in a lot of ways he, they grew and they've matured, but there's still that authentic, down-to-earth uh, couple that I met now 28 years ago. And you have been there, not just someone who has worked for the president, but you've been like their big sister. Yes. Um, I've stopped saying that now that he has all that gray hair. Yeah. Like, I want to rotate into the younger sister. But yeah, I mean, I'm an only child. And, and so my friends that I select are the siblings that I have. And, and we grew very close. And it's an unusual. Usually you're closer to one part of a couple than the other. And I was, I am really equally close to them both. And so it's been just an honor to be able to share their journey, and that their journey has been a big part of my journey. And also, that journey involved the whole process of when President Obama decided to run for president in the first place. Yeah. You talk about you know, his, his journey of running for state senate and his loss of running for Congress and his U.S. senator race. And as soon as he called you and said, I'm running for president, or I'm, I'm, what did he tell you? Well, he said, I'm thinking about doing it. Yeah. And I knew what the it was. It was kind of obvious by then in the, because it was in the, the Christmas break between 2006 and 2007. And I had learned my lesson when he said he was considering running for the Senate because Michelle Obama didn't want him to run. And I thought it was a mistake, too. He just lost the congressional race. And so she orchestrated a brunch at my home to try to talk him out of this crazy idea. <laughs> and not only did we not talk him out of it, but it, my last thing that I said to him is, well, you you can't raise any money. You don't actually know anybody in the business community. And he goes, that's why you're going to chair my finance committee. <laughs> Should have kept quiet on that. Uh, but the, the message that he gave me and, and the rest of us sitting around the table was really... Because um, I said, I'm afraid, I should never have said that word to him, that if you lose, then your political career will be over. And he said, if I'm not afraid, why are you? He said, I'm willing to take that chance. The worst thing that will happen is I'll lose, and I can always get a job. It's not like I'm going to have a hard time finding a job. And let's try, and let's see what will happen. So when he came around to saying he wanted to run for president, I'm like, yes, let's go, let's do that. And uh, I always thought... He could win, not that he would win necessarily. And in fact, if you fast forward after he won in 2008, I was uh, with my parents and we were watching 60 Minutes. The two of them, first couple elect, were on 60 Minutes. And that's back when 60 Minutes to me was like a huge, huge deal. And I saw them as the same couple I had seen back in 91 when we met. And at the end of it, uh, I was watching it with my parents. And my dad was really ill. He was in rehab at the time and had been just deathly ill. So glad to have him there. And my mother looked at me and she said, how did you know that he would win? Not, no, how did you know that he could win? Not that he would win, but even that he could win. And I said, because you raised me to believe if you worked twice as hard and you had a vision and you, you went for it and you were prepared for failure and you were resilient and tough, The sky's the limit. And she said, well, I never believed any of that. (laughs) And then my father said, yeah, me either. (laughs) And what I, first of all, I was really taken aback because it was like, this is how you raised me. And I realized that they had raised me aspirationally, Mm -hmm. not as a life that they had 
led necessarily, but the life that they wished that I would lead. And my mom prepared me for disaster, but they pushed me and, um, and enabled me to dream big and enabled me to recognize that things often seem impossible until they seem inevitable. And in that case, it became inevitable. And you know what's interesting? You know, I felt the same way. I, I didn't think that he would win. Mm -hmm. I thought that he could. I was out there in Springfield, Illinois in 2007. I was one of those persons during the, it was below 10 degrees. Were you one of the 17,000 I was people? one of the, I was like this. It, I didn't even oh. know the people who I were next to, but we were very close. Yes. Everybody became <laughs> we familiar that we day. We became very familiar with one another. And we were like, just, we were like, do not, no one move. And we waited and it was, and, and I thought, I can't even, and I was actually with Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. uh, who's running for president now, and we were out there freezing our butts off, waiting for Barack Obama to speak, and I just thought, man, I don't think he could win, but I'm with him. And, I, and, and it was, I just really felt that I was, I was nervous about, you know, the country and how they would accept him in terms of his name yes. and just really, um, the ideas and the challenges that exist. And so, um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know there was this campaign journey and this, ha the night that he won, oh my gosh. the night that he won, I was actually in Ohio. I was like, I fell asleep in the car because I'd worked so hard, but... <laughs> Thank you for it, the hard work. Yeah, it, it was the night that he won. I was like in tears. Yeah. I mean, tell us, you have been on this journey with him, his family. This was, you, this was basically your family, but we were making history in this country, and you were the really important part of making history. How did it feel that night? I was exhausted. <laughs> I was so tired. We'd gone out that day. My daughter came with us. We flew to uh, Indianapolis for one campaign stop. Uh, just to show people he was still on that day of the election working hard, and we had been running like full out. And my daughter said, well, this isn't bad. It's one stop. Why is this so hard? And I was like, no, you don't understand. This is election day. We've been really working hard. And sadly, his grandmother had died the, yes. just the day before. Our two got so close and, and, and had not made it. And uh, so it was kind of bittersweet in that way. But we were uh, preparing for this rally in Grand Park, hoping for the best. And one of the funny stories, it just shows you kids out of the mouths of babes. Um, when the Obamas left their home to go to the hotel where we waited for the returns, they were driving down Lakeshore Drive. And, uh, and it's packed, right? And so then they get to the hotel. And then when it's time to go to Grand Park, everybody who was in the hotel left earlier so we could get to Grand Park. Again, fingers crossed. And I'm on my way to Grand Park with a busload of supporters. And we hear that he's won. And so, of course, the bus goes up and uproar. And then I get to Grand Park, and I decide to wait backstage to see him. Now, they come from the Hyatt Hotel towards Grand Park. And by that point, he's the president-elect, right? Not a car on the street, because Secret Service kicks in immediately, and there is no traffic. And Malia said, Daddy, I'm so sorry. I don't think anybody's coming to your party. <laughs> It just shows you how kids are. And she was so protective of him. It's like, I'm so sorry. There's nobody there. He goes, I think there are going to be a few people there. And we get to Grand Park, and lo and behold, there are a million people there. And in, you know, any of you know, you guys take your weather for granted. November in Chicago, when it's above 60 degrees, you're on, it's a good night. And this was like early 70s, I think, low 70s. And so I'm standing backstage, and I'm thinking, what can I say to my friend to capture how I feel? And I was searching for words, and I'm not usually at a loss for words. And I saw him uh, come up the steps to the riser, and he's walking towards me, and he starts out about as far as the back of this room. And I'm like, something brilliant come to mind, something brilliant come to mind. And I couldn't think of what to say. Literally, not a word came out of my mouth. And he came over, and I guess he couldn't think of what to say either. We never said a word. He hugged me, and I hugged him, and it was like squeezed him and tried to fight back the tears. And that was that. And I'm glad, actually, now, because I would have probably not said the exact right thing. And it's better to just have the emotion um, that le that's left unsaid at a time like that. And what a... It was just a beautiful moment. And the fact that there was... Everybody in Grant Park felt the way we felt in Springfield that day, only with a few more people. Jubilant, excited. I mean, the cameras were on folks who were t in crying, hugging perfect strangers. It was a beautiful moment. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Amazing moment. I was asleep in the car after he first, <laughs> I didn't hear the whole speech, but I was like, sleep, I, was, I just heard him start speaking and I was like this. <laughs> we worked hard in Ohio. We were so happy and we won Ohio. It was so. a big state to win. Yes. And, 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 and tell us a little bit. I mean, I know people are dying to hear about, you know, so many things that you accomplished um, in the White House. I mean, the work that you all did with Obamacare, the work uh, that you did with same-sex marriage and all of the just really challenges that had existed. You guys overcame these tremendous obstacles despite the drama that you had to face when there was a change in... And, um, well, we won't even go there, but there was, you know, really some challenging times when you yes, were in the were. White House, were. White House and, and to the point where I remember you talked about in the book, there was a breaking point. But uh, let's talk about that, that moment um, where you felt that we had did something amazing and maybe not everyone else realizes how amazing it was, but you were like in the middle of it. You helped make it happen. The hard work, you made it happen through this you know, incredible process that can sometimes be very difficult to make anything happen. So that tell us a true. little bit about that. That's true. Well, I'll tell you, one of his, the strengths, I think, of his leadership is that he had the ability to take the long view and recognize that you're going to absorb a lot of pain on your way to that long view and that you just can't put your short-term political interests ahead of what's best for the country. And perhaps the Affordable Care Act passing is one of the best examples where it was an uphill climb. Seven presidents before him had tried to get it passed and failed. And he was just determined to get it done. And one of the ways that he would lift us up sometimes was with humor. And I remember one time we were really thinking that there's no way this is going to get done. It was a summer recesses and the members of Congress had gone home to their districts for, coming, for hearings and the Republicans were promoting this notion of death panels. Now, nobody actually knew what a death panel was, but you knew you didn't want one, right? <laughs> Just the name was a perfectly diabolical name to say, ugh. And we were in the Oval Office, and every, all of his senior team were just so dispirited. And uh, he asked one guy, well, Phil, third-way Phil, who was in charge of legislative affairs, what are we going to do? And so Phil said, well, if you're feeling lucky, we can do this and that. And everybody else was like, that's not going to work. That's a disaster. And President Obama said, you're asking me if I feel lucky? He said, where are we, Phil? So <laughs> Phil's like, we're in the Oval Office. <laughs> and he goes, and what's my name? And he said, President Obama? And he said, no, my name is Barack Hussein Obama. And we're in here? Yes, go figure out how to get this done. <laughs> And it just lifted us up, and we did get it done. And the night that it uh, was scheduled to pass, I went home with my same friend who I sat across the table with uh, back, way back in the mayor's office, who now was in the White House counsel's office, Susan Schur. And we go home to watch the vote, and I think Maude might have been there. I mean, we're just, like, relaxing. We're from Chicago. We counted the votes long before they took place. <laughs> and... Uh, that's how we rolled. And so it's late at night, and Susan and I are in our pajamas. We have a big bowl of popcorn, a glass of wine, and we're getting ready for the vote, and the phone rings, and it's Katie Johnson, President Obama's assistant. And she says, President Obama would like everybody who worked on the Affordable Care Act to come back to the White House. And we're like, mm, we're good here. You know, <laughs> got our popcorn. We're exhausted. Been working on it nonstop. I said, we'll, we'll just watch it from here. And she goes, <clears throat> President Obama would like everybody who worked... <laughs> On the Affordable Care Act to come back. So we're like, okay, we get it, we get it. So we get dressed and schlup back and have the celebration. And then he's like, 100 people, come on upstairs and celebrate. Well, Mrs. Obama was out of town. That's the only way he got away with that. <laughs> and you can just imagine what's happening. The ushers are like, what? 100 people coming upstairs? What do we serve? They're in the freezer looking for pigs in the blanket or something. And uh, Secret Service is like, renegades on the move, plus 100. <laughs> this just didn't happen. 
But it was a unique night, right? And then we get up there and we're celebrating. And he's saying to everybody how important they were, from Vice President Biden to the most junior person on my staff who found this woman, Natoma Canfield, who'd written a note to President Obama explaining her illness and why um, affordable health insurance would be so important to her, because she did what many families would do. She played Russian roulette. She contracted cancer. She was treated for it. She went into remission. And then she was, her premiums went up because she had a pre-existing condition. And she's choosing between holding on to her mom's childhood home and paying her premiums. And she opted to not pay the premiums. And of course, the cancer came back. And so she became our spokesperson. And when she was too ill to talk about it, her sister showed up in her place. And my staff person, Ann Widger, developed this relationship with Natoma and her sister. And so President Obama said to her, you're the reason this passed. And he has her hands like this, and there's a photo in my book of him looking at this woman who's like, oh, my God, the president of the United States is talking to me. And he said, this is what I want. I want us to be engaging with the American people. I want them to be a part of what we're all about. And so that was a moment. But later that night, and we're talking like 2 a.m., I'd had maybe two martinis to confess to you, uh, because we're celebrating. And I sidled up to President Obama, and we were on the Truman Balcony, my favorite place in the White House. And you're looking out on the South Lawn and the... Washington Monument is blinking in the Jefferson Memorial behind that. And I said, how do you feel tonight compared to election night? Because you look so happy. And he said, there's no comparison. He said, election night was just about getting to this night. And yes, election night, I won. But tonight, the American people win. And that's what you're supposed to do. And I thought, that's why I work for you. You know, and and so many great stories in the book. But what I found quite interesting, too, is like really your relationship where you the president would call you or you'll just show up at his house and have dinner. And it's like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with Michelle and Barack. And, you know, all of us here, we look at Michelle and Barack and we go, whoa, wow, that's amazing. And you have this incredible relationship with them. And part of what you do in the book, which I think is great, is you expose it in such a way that you're like, wow, they're, they're human. Just they're like, normal, right. Well, you're, and, and you're normal, but you're like incredible. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I, I say that this is exciting because I, it, it's like, I'm glad you wrote the book because it's like I have this newfound appreciation and respect for all the incredible things you did. I mean, we saw it from afar and watching it on the news and rooting for you and getting mad with you and everything else. But to just understand it better was absolutely fascinating. And at this time, I wanted to take an opportunity because I know so many people in this audience have uh, questions uh, about um, just really your journey here. But, but in particular, can you speak to the voting.org you created with Michelle Obama? Yes, yes. All right, so <clears throat> after the 2016 election, uh, I have to tell you, it was soul-crushing. I, did, I didn't see it coming. And I kind of took to the bed in the fetal position for a little while. <laughs> I ate a lot. Um, I won't tell you what we had a name for that. But anyway, it was like the, fish, the freshman 15 when you go to college. But ours was just like, how did this happen? And I was trying to figure out what happened. And there were lots of reasons probably. But the one I zeroed in on uh, is one I thought I could help do something about. And that is that 43% of eligible voters did not vote. And in a democracy, you have to have people participate. That, that's what it's all about. And when they don't, when they opt out, then bad things can happen. And elections have serious consequences, and we have lived with many of those consequences um, over the last couple of years. And so I, so Michelle Obama and I spent a lot of time thinking about this 43%, and we thought, well, what if we form a not-for-profit organization, we call it When We All Vote, to try, nonpartisan, to try to change the culture in the country around voting, and to develop partnerships with people all over the country who are doing the important work of culture change. And it has to start on the ground. Culture doesn't, you can't legislate culture. Although I will say to you, I do believe we should have mandatory voting. And I say this everywhere I go, I try to get it in because, um, does anybody agree with me? I think it would. (laughs) We're going to start a movement. Vote or die. Vote or die. Exactly. (laughs) I was in Australia a couple years ago now, right after the election. And a woman put it to me like this, because I thought it was a way of forcing democratic and civic participation. But she said to me, look, oftentimes the energy is on the extremes, and that's where the money goes, and that's where the special interests go. But if you had mandatory voting, the country's really more of a bell curve, and it would push 
politicians into the middle. And they'd have to listen to a whole bunch of opinions, not just a narrow constituency group, but they'd have to listen to everybody because that's where most people are. So I'm for that. But in the absence of mandatory voting, we are working with organizations like these amazing young people from Parkland where they had this tragedy happen in their school. Yeah. And they could have just said, okay, we're going to opt out and we're just, you know, we're going to deal with our personal trauma. And instead, they've traveled around the country last summer registering people to vote. And they went to red states and blue states alike. And one of the young men, David Hogue, I stay in touch with them. Uh, he, in Texas, open carry state, he left his rally and he went outside and he was talking to the protesters. That's modeling the kind of behavior I think we need to have. And he said, I wanted to understand why they were against background checks. And I wanted to listen to them. And I wanted to try to convince them for why I was right. And so we formed partnerships all over the country with organizations that are trying to get people registered to vote. And not just in a presidential race. So you'll appreciate this. I think who is your mayor has a very important impact on your life. I agree. Right? Definitely. Who's in your city council? Who's in the state legislature? Who's, who's on the school board? Who, who's on your school board? Who's your state's attorney? Who's prosecuting cases and deciding with dis- what discretion should be used? They're all important. And I think we have to start a movement. It's going to be a grassroots effort to change that culture. So that's one of the many things I'm up to now. Well, that, that's amazing because um, it's, it's necessary. And again, you, you talk a lot about that in your book. Um, and I'm sure that it's, it was a challenge to go from the Obama administration and seeing all the incredible gains that had been made, all the accomplishments, and just what we're you know, basically struggling with now. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, what do you make of the current uh, tug-of-war between so-called establishment Democrats and the far left, and what's happening with the party, and, and what are we going to be able to do to to change that post-Obama? Well, so this is what I think about the Democratic Party. Uh, it's, it has a very big tent, and I think that's the strength of the party, is, is that we uh, embrace a whole range of ideas that fall under the Democratic values, progressive values. And the comment that I have made, and actually President Obama was talking about this uh, in his European swing a few days ago, is, is that, and I've, I've spoken to several of the candidates who are either running or thinking of putting their name in the hat, and I've said, look, a few things. First of all, have an affirmative action, uh, affirmative message for what you believe uh, you will do as president. You have to earn the trust of the American people, and it's a long road between where we are right now. It's very early, and the race. At this point, President Obama was down by about 20 points. So a lot will happen between now and the time we have a nominee next summer. Uh, So remember that the real prize is winning the general election. Don't beat each other up so much in the process that by the time we get to the general election, whoever our nominee is is so bruised and beat up that we can't rally everybody behind them. Yes. So I think that's important. I also think that it's great to have big, bold ideas, and I, and I support those ideas. Certainly President Obama had them. Once you go from a campaign, though, to actually governing, you have to appreciate that you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. And your idea of perfect isn't going to be everybody's idea of perfect. And if he, we had let perfect be the enemy of, a good, of the good, perhaps we would have gone for a public option for health care, and then 20 million people wouldn't have health care today. One in two Americans wouldn't ha- would, would be worrying about pre-existing conditions. Young people wouldn't be able to stay on their parents' plan until they're 26. Women wouldn't be having access to preventive care. And so you have to, once you're in a position to govern, recognize it can't be my way or the highway. It can't be just my bold idea and I'm going to turn blue until I get it. And uh, I experienced being on the other side of that in the White House where the Republicans basically said, we're just going to say no to everything President Obama wants to say. Even if we meet them three-fourths of the way, even if we make 200 amendments to the Affordable Care Act, trying to find some bipartisanship, we're just going to say no. And I don't think that that's ultimately... Well, I know it's not what's in the best interest of the country, in, of the country but as I have traveled this country over the last 10-plus years, 12 years now, I don't think it's what's in the heart of the American people. And so, so many people, back to my earlier point 
just are shunning all institutions right now. You can develop your community in the palm of your hand. You don't really have to you know, have a community geographically where you live. And I think that's a problem. And I think social media contributes to it. The polar, the toxicity in the air uh, contributes to it. And what I think we have to do is lift up the voices of the people who say, this is my affirmative vision for our country. This is where I think we should go. This is why I think I'm qualified to do that. And I think those are the politicians that I would like to see rise to the top. Yeah, and and in your book, you had what you call a breaking point when that situation occurred on a regular basis where everything that the president did to try and work with people was met with the opposition. So tell us, you know, how were you able to move past that? Well, I did have a breaking point, and I am pretty temperamentally even keel and similar to the president. I think his comes from Hawaii, you know, where everything is kind of <laughs> laid back. And I didn't have that, but I just, just think temperamentally I, I have this resilience. And again, it probably came from my parents. And having worked in local government, I know that hard things are really hard and that you just have to push it through. And uh, we were talking earlier, Kelly and I went to some of the worst public meetings in the world as we were trying to help redevelop neighborhoods. And so I'm used to people being afraid of change and having to earn their trust to get it through. But in this particular instance, we were facing what's called the debt ceiling. And that is raising our debt limits so that we don't default on the full faith and credit of the United States of America's treasury bonds, which set world markets. And the Republicans, particularly the what was then called the Tea Party, they were... Um, they said, actually, it would be good for the country to default on our full faith and credit. It would teach us a lesson for spending so much money. Mm. And I thought, how could you say such a thing? Do you realize what the consequences would be? But when you're in the minority, as the Republicans were back then, uh, in the Senate at least, you can say all kinds of stuff. You can, in the House, repeal the Affordable Care Act 50 plus times because you know it's not going to get done in the Senate. And I just thought, how irresponsible of you to do this. And we went to Camp David for President Obama's birthday after this fiasco happened. And I I'd really, I just burst into tears. And it was kind of awkward because here the President of the United States is comforting me and our friends are all trying not to stare <laughs> at me crying in the corner. And I just thought, you know what? All right, that's how they're going to be. And maybe we won't break that fever. And I'm going to take my energy and I'm going to direct it other than at Congress. And since, as you described in the beginning, my portfolio, in addition to being the senior advisor, which is everything that goes across his desk, was working with our nation's mayors and governors and other elected officials who weren't in Congress, and also the Office of Public Engagement and the White House Council on Women and Girls. And so I literally turned my attention away from Congress. And I said, if you need me to go and talk to a particular legislator about something, and I spent a lot of time with the Women's Caucus on women and girls, fine. But I just can't emotionally worry about trying to get them to go come to the table with us because it was so incredibly personally frustrating. And so I thought, well, let me spend my energy where we can move the needle. And we came out here, for example, and met in the Bay Area with a group of tech companies about the importance of diversity in technology and tried to show them evidence that proved the point I made far earlier about it being a strength and a competitive advantage. And I just went about that business, and I found that more rewarding. Yeah, well... um you definitely made a lot of gains, and, and we're grateful for that because it is, I can't even imagine. I mean, as mayor, I deal with a lot of challenges, and just on a national level in that capacity, absolutely amazing. Um, another question is, what was it like in the White House when the sitting president was having his citizenship and his legitimacy questioned? Well, it's it's interesting you would raise that. Um, Because this is something I think we got wrong, and not so much particularly that, but generally when we would hear crazy things, like President Obama wasn't a citizen, the whole birther movement, or that he was a Muslim, not that there would have been anything wrong with it if he was, but he wasn't, or, you know, all the kinds of things, or that Mrs. Obama was an angry black woman, there was all that nonsense about her during the campaign, which was quite hurtful, and both she and I talk about that in our books. We just said, well, that's nonsense. We'll ignore it. Who would believe it? Particularly after Reverend Wright and that fiasco, it's like, nobody's going to believe you're a Muslim. They know you have this black pastor as your uh, head of your church, and people were paying a great deal of attention to him. And I think we made a mistake. I think we assumed that it was going to be on the up and up and the people would be logical. And we didn't appreciate that if you say something over and over and over again, that people eventually believe it. And so the birther movement, which I consider to be venal and put President and Mrs. Obama in harm's way with people who 
who really questioned his legitimacy, and it, it generated an enormous amount of hatred uh, over something that's just not true. Yeah. And I wish that we had nipped it in the bud right away, and we thought we would be giving it oxygen, and that's the phrase we use. Well, if we say anything about it, then it gives it oxygen. And the only reason why he finally said, okay send somebody to Hawaii, get my long-form birth certificate, not the short one, because they're not believing that, was to just move the issue behind us. Uh, but, but we didn't realize how much it had been percolating around the country. And w- my advice to those of you who are running for office is when you hear things about yourself, not you directly, but nip it in the bud quickly. And m- that might even not work in this environment because there are all kinds of sources of information that don't have any legitimacy that people listen to. Uh, but we should have we should have nipped that sooner. Yeah. So we didn't talk about it much at all. We just ignored it. And I, I mean, I'll just say on a kind of a lighter note, when I used to wake up in the morning and look at cable television, try to figure out what was happening, and I would walk in the Oval Office sometimes agitated. And President Obama would take one look at me. He'd go, you've been watching cable, haven't you? <laughs> He's like, turn off Morning Joe. They just make you crazy. And... And get out, of, get out of Washington, travel around the country, meet those ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things, and it will refresh your memory about why we're here. And, and uh, um, that's, that's exactly some good advice for me. So I'm welcome. I would welcome any advice that you would have for me as mayor, as someone who has so much experience, so feel free. Um, besides your parents, who were some of your role models growing up, well, my extended family. We, I think when you're an only child, you, you, your family is the family you choose. And I was fortunate to live in a neighborhood with a bunch of my cousins and their parents, and they all parented us. Uh, we would forum shop, and so we'd go. If you wanted like tough advice, hard advice, you'd go to my mother. If you wanted unconditional love, you'd go to Puddin or her daughter, who was, said everybody was always right. If you wanted uh, advice about boys, you'd go to my Aunt Anne, because she'd been divorced, and she was like hip, and we thought you know, she knew everything. Um, <laughs> if you wanted an adventure, you would go with Kelly's uh, father-in-law, my Uncle Gene, who would pick us up in the morning and take us on adventures, and my, our parents had no idea would we return that night or would it be like three days later. You just never knew. He would take us to the Indiana Dunes, and it was always an adventure. And so I think having so many adults in my life who parented us all, all equally, I mean, I would, we'd, wherever you were on a weekend is where you spent the night. Uh, wherever you were at dinner time is where you ate. And we didn't realize, as I didn't know when I, when I ran away from home, that our parents were all talking to one another all the time. <laughs> Uh, we thought we had outsmarted them, and I, but it, it gave me a sense of uh, belonging and a sense of place, and I was well-loved and well-nurtured, and I think that prepared me for having the resilience that you need in life. So I feel, I feel very fortunate to have had that big extended family. Yeah, and you, you eventually became that for so many people. I mean, your house is the gathering place whenever anyone comes into town for food. So I guess when I come to Chicago, I can come. Maude is saying yes, thank you. You are welcome. Uh, My 90-year-old mother, who still works full-time, so yeah, she's quite a role model. I'm like, oh, you never get to quit, huh? She does. She teaches graduate school and early childhood education. Wow. And every Sunday she hosts a dinner for our family that's still in Chicago, and it's at least 20, 25 people. And she cooks, and she begins thinking about it Monday, like, what am I going to do next Sunday? And anyone who's in town is welcome. And I think, and, and in D.C., I have a cousin who does the same thing there. So she's kind of continuing the, the, the uh, tradition. She's in my generation, and so now we all go over there, and it just, you need to belong. You can't just belong to a device. I mean, come back to that theme. You need a sense of community, people who are invested in you, who when you stumble and fall, and I think one of the lessons I learned going back, looking back now, over a very circuitous career, at times where I took these big chances where people said, what are you doing? Why would you leave a big law firm to go work for city government? City government was where the magic was, where the adventure was, where I grew as a person and developed. And I try to say to people, get out of that comfort zone. And it's easier to do that when you have a safety net because you can afford to stumble and fall. But I think a lot of people who could afford it don't necessarily take the risks that they should. And I found that the uh, magic is in the zigzag, not in the straight line. Yeah. And also, um, sometimes when 
you're in a position like you were in, it can be a really lonely place. Yes. Um, and you, you could hardly go out anywhere without someone recognizing you and wanting to take photos or wanting to know what's going on in the White House and, and, and constantly. So how, how did your life change, especially once you uh, were in the White House and the work that you were doing? How, how did your personal life change and your ability to get out and just interact with people? Well, it does. you do become a bit in a bubble, but I had people in my life, like you mentioned too, Kelly and Maude, who are here today, who were with us on this journey. And there were people who I had spent um, my adult, early adulthood with in Chicago who joined the Obama administration, or Kelly, who moved to Washington with her family. Um, her daughters, our twins are the same age as Malia, and they'd known each other since they were born. And so we had an infrastructure around us of people who knew us, as like I like to say, back in the day, who were proud of what we were doing, but weren't going to like tease us any less or you know push back. And I remember the first time my daughter um, got into a big argument with President Obama. And I was like marveling at the fact that my daughter, who was in law school at the time, had no problem saying, you know, I disagree with you about that. Let me tell you why. <laughs> and so you need that. It keeps you humble. And so I thank those people in my life who kept me grounded and who made me feel well-loved. And, and you, I mean, all, I think oftentimes we have friends who, or so-called friends who don't necessarily wish us well, like kind of the fair-weather friends. And I got rid of all those. <laughs> and I was left with people who were rooting for me, and that made a big difference. Nice. Well, if you could give yourself advice on January 20th, 2009, what would that be? Oh, my gosh. Wow. What would I say to myself back then? Well, I would say appreciate every single day and know how finite eight years are, and it could have been four. Uh, thank goodness it was eight. And I did try to like have those pinch myself moments where I would, where I'd say take it all in. And I, I'll tell you a story about, and I think we, this applies to everybody in life. You have to have, as I said, friends who ground you, but also in the White House because you couldn't get caught up in the swirl. You need to have something that just anchors you. And I met a man in the campaign on the campaign trail who uh, was operating our elevator in Austin, Texas, during the primary season. And when we got into the elevator at like 7.30 in the morning, President Obama is not a morning person. I don't think I'm betraying any state secrets to tell you that. Uh, never has been. And I am. I'm perky in the morning. I'm as like... And I had to learn to like take it down a notch because he's not really perky at that time of day. He gets perkier as time goes on. But we get into the elevator and this gentleman says, excuse me, I'd like to um, say something. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't start up a conversation with him right now. I've learned that lesson. But he did. And he said, sir, I'd like to give you something. And uh, it was a patch from his military uniform. And President, then Senator Obama realizes what it is, and he said, oh, I couldn't possibly accept that. And the guy goes, they go back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the gentleman says, sir, I've carried this with me every day for 40 years, and I want you to have it. Well, I burst into tears. And I don't mean like those little tears that trickle down. I mean like, <gasps> I couldn't catch my breath. And this was before people started like passing their newborn babies over a mosh pit to him <laughs> for photographs. I never understood that. It's like, it's your baby. What are you doing? There are 10 strangers between you and the president. He will hold it, but they might not. They might drop that baby. So this was so moving. So later in the day, I said to him, like, what did you do with that patch from the military uniform? And he said, I put it in my pocket. And I thought, you know what? Typical guy. I don't mean like, where did you physically put it? How did it make you feel that he's giving you this treasured <laughs> possession? So he said, Valerie, I put it in my pocket. And so he reaches in a pocket and he pulls out like these 12 different trinkets. And he tells me the story behind each one, the name of the person, if he knew it, why it was so special and that he wanted to keep it with him and put it in his pocket. So um, I thought about that and I thought, let me think about that man every single day that I have the privilege of working in the White House. And remember that he sacrificed like his most treasured possession in order for us to have this chance to serve. And it helped. It really helped anchor me and ground me, in addition to my friends, a stranger. And so fast forward four years, I tell this story all the time about him because he symbolized what the campaign was all about, like ordinary people sacrificing for the greater good. And a reporter from the Washington Post called me and she said, I want to find that man for the second uh, inauguration and write a story. And my immediate reaction was no. 
Because, like, what if he was an axe murderer? I didn't know him. <laughs> I'd been thinking about him every single day. And, like, I had a fantasy of him being a lovely man. And what if I was wrong? Well, you know that reporter found him, tracked him down, and then sent me his email. And so his name is Earl Smith. And so she said, here's his email. And I wrote him, Dear Mr. Smith, um, I was a woman in the elevator crying. And... Uh, <laughs> Thank you for giving the president the patch. I thought about you every single day, and I just wanted you to know that. And he writes back, Dear Miss Jared, yes, I remember you. <laughs> and then I told President Obama, and he said, Invite him to the inauguration, the second inauguration. Mm. So we did. Mr. Smith came to Washington. <laughs> and I, then he came by the Oval Office the next day, and he walks into the Oval Office, and he's standing tall, and he, he uh, salutes President Obama, and President Obama salutes him back, and of course, I burst into tears again. <laughs> And uh, then he sat in the box for the last date of the union. And it was this cont- continuum of, like, you, make, you meet a person, you build a relationship with them, and it continues, and you feel the sense of connection. And that is what, I think, enabled me to serve with um, intentionality and purpose, was feeling the sense of relationship to a man who, for the first four years, I didn't even know his name, mm. but he was important to me. Nice. That was one of the stories that I teared up on, too. <laughs> Our last burning question. Uh oh. Will, will you ever run for office? Uh, ha, ha. I know you just elected a new, <laughs> a new mayor in Chicago. We do have a new mayor in Chicago. And the first African American woman, openly gay, wishing her well. You should give her a call and give her I some already support. Did. I knew you did. Yes. I talked to her the day after the election. I said, Lori, I'm so proud of you. But believe me, there's a big difference between campaigning and governing. And as you know, you need the people with you. And I encourage her to seek a lot of help. So the answer is no. Um, At least not, I don't have that burning desire. And if you do it, as I'm sure you would say, Madam Mayor, you have to really want to get in there and do it. And I think at this stage of my life, what I enjoy doing is helping other people run for office. And I've learned a lot over the years. And it's kind of like my mom said after my wedding, she had only one child and my daughter, she's like, I've got all this experience. And what do I do with it? There's no second wedding. And I feel that kind of way, too. And so I have enjoyed talking to the candidates who are running for either mayor of Chicago or president of the United States. And if I can help them, that's really where I feel I am. And I help President Obama with his foundation, which is designed to create a laboratory for public engagement and get the next generation excited about changing their communities. And that's what makes me perk up. So not right now. I don't think so. Well, I'm always looking for a good policy advisor. I'd be happy to do that. (laughs) You don't need much help. You are setting this city on fire, and I'm just honored that you would spend time out of your schedule having this conversation with me. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Our thanks to Valerie Jarrett, Senior Advisor to President Barack Obama and author of Finding My Voice for joining us today. We would also like to remind our audience that copies of her book, Finding My Voice, are available for purchase, and she will be happy to sign copies on stage in just a few moments. Please stay seated, and Commonwealth Club staff will give further instructions. I'm San Francisco Mayor London Breed. You have been joined by one of the most fascinating, incredible persons of our time who has really shaped the lives of so many Americans over the years, Valerie Jarrett. Thank you so much. And this Commonwealth Club meeting is now adjourned. Thank you all so much. Thank you all. Thank you.